Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into Wildlife, Vox Lux, and The Favorite in today's review episode. I can show you the world. Just take a look through my eyes. That's right, three films today uh, to talk about, to review, to react to. I don't know. They're all in various stages of limited release right now. The favorite is actually going to be uh, expanding wide uh, over this coming weekend. Uh, and that is easily the highest profile film of the three I'm going to talk about. But as such, uh, you know, when you have something that's generally more anticipated uh it ends up being the last thing you talk about so that's where the favorite uh will be no no spoilers uh we're gonna avoid all spoilers for all three movies and just kind of keep it quick condensed and concise Uh, hit these movies quick hard and leave you with an impression and maybe help uh, in figuring out if you want to see it or not, and what, whether they're worth seeking. So, that being said, let's jump into Wildlife. Wildlife. Wildlife, they're all 2018 films. Wildlife was directed by Paul Dano, who you may recognize as an actor in many things, including There Will Be Blood, he was in 12 Years a Slave, Prisoners, Little Miss Sunshine, Looper, Okja, Swiss Army Man, Where the Wild Things Are, Ruby Sparks, Love and Mercy... Uh, yeah, he, he's, he's, he's done some stuff. This is his directorial debut. It stars Kerry Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal and Bill Camp and uh, Ed Oxenbold, who is kind of a newcomer. He's a younger kid. I, didn't, I thought I recognized him uh, in the movie, but I really didn't. Or at least I didn't find anything that I knew him from when I looked through his filmography. So... Not really sure where I see him, saw him before, if I did, or he just looks like some other teenage white boy that I saw somewhere else. Anyway, uh, let's see. Ed Oxenbold plays Joe. He's a teenager who lives in um, Montana, small town, Montana. They, His parents, uh, Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal, are having some tough time uh, in in their relationship, uh, both with each other and and with their son and with with their work and money and all that kind of stuff. It, it's just a tough time for them. Uh, the film takes place about 50, 60 years ago, uh, and at the time, there's a pretty pretty big raging forest fire happening in. Along, along the border with Canada. And so early in the film, Jake Gyllenhaal loses his job and decides to enlist in uh, as, a, as a firefighter. He will be making a uh, dollar an hour, which was not good, but actually, you know, not unreasonable at that time, so, so somehow. 
and it'll force him to be gone for some period of time. He says that the um, he'll be back as soon as it starts to snow, because the snow will put out the fire, which makes sense, but who knows when that'll be. First snow could be December, could be November, could be January, you know, that there's a pretty wide range of outcomes. But in the meantime, uh, Joe and his mom, Jeanette, are stuck on their own. She, his mom has to get a job, uh, he has to get a job, the kid has to get a job, and it really puts things into this really odd situation where you're not sure what the outcome is supposed to be. And what I mean by that is the film itself abandons the Jake Gyllenhaal character 20, 30 minutes into the movie, if that. You know, he he's in it pretty... He's pretty much the main character for the first 15 minutes, and then he's cut out as he goes to fight this fire. And he's gone for a large percentage of the film. So now we're left with the mom and kid, mother and son, trying to determine what they're doing. Are they waiting for Jake Gyllenhaal to return? Are they trying to live a life now assuming he won't return? Do they think he's going to die? Is he going to, uh, you know, return with money and a new job? They're, they're, They're completely you know, left in the dark over what what's going to happen after that. So, they kind of have to operate as if he might not come back. And for for both Carrie Mulligan and Ed Oxenbold, or, or Jeanette and Joe, it, it's a very different reaction. Uh, you know, for Joe, it's a father. He doesn't have a father. He doesn't, you know, his family doesn't have a primary source of income. His mom does not make very much money working at the the Y, teaching people to swim. He does not make very much money. Uh, he works at a photography studio, taking pictures, and none of this is going to solve the problem if dad doesn't return, Jerry doesn't return. On the other hand, you have Jeanette, who lost a husband which is very different than losing a father. Uh, she, you, you can't really ever replace your father, but you can kind of replace a husband. You can find somebody new, or you know, you can, you know, you you can feel love again for another person. You can uh, develop a new relationship, and you know that's an idea that she considers, and and you know is something that weighs on her head while she wonders whether or not Hall will come back. And so the film is, is very meandering in that way. It, it takes its time until it's all of a sudden at a new revelation. And then it takes its time. And then all of a sudden it's up to a new revelation again. Which I, I found intriguing. I thought that that was a unique way to show this uh, this um, how this story unfolded. You know, it's not just you know you draw those uh, 
narrative story plotline arcs where you have rising action and then you have the climax and then falling action. This was like, you know, rising action, plateau. Stark rising action, plateau. Stark rising, plateau. And what it did was, you know, after the first time this happens, which I would say is when uh, Jerry decides, I'm going to be a firefighter. You know, you have this like slow building thing up, you know, he loses his job, he doesn't have a job, he's got to find a job, and then all of a sudden he's a firefighter. And then after that, there's this period of time where things slow down and nothing drastic changes, and it's just kind of Jerry, uh, Joe and Jeanette going through, why do they all, all their names start with a J, Joe and Jeanette go through these motions of, okay, well, is he going to come back, where's he going to go, what's going to happen, and then all of a sudden, something new happens. And then we're in a new stasis, and then again, we're just waiting and like waiting and waiting, and then something new happens, and it it what it it creates this sense of it, it lulls you into a false sense of security during the plateaus where you don't know whether or not everything is going to be upended at the drop of a hat, uh, or maybe it just or or maybe it'll come crashing down the other way you know maybe instead of a stark sharp rising action it's a sharp falling action and i think that dano does a great job of controlling the story from his side of the camera because oftentimes you end up with a movie where you see this you see the story unfold you see it begin you have the groundwork set up the characters defined the 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 objective uh, clearly uh, presented and then the movie goes about achieving that objective with the characters through the setting very straightforward whereas with wildlife that's not the case uh, it's it's not exactly there isn't really an objective I wouldn't say. I think the closest thing to an objective is that Joe, the kid, just wants a family. And he wants to be happy with his family. And so we go through the sequencing of him taking the steps necessary in his mind as a 14-year-old to achieve that goal and when you're 14 pulling uh, stitching a family together and and keeping them close and connected is not easy it's it's very you know it's hard enough when you're an adult to keep a family together in a lot of instances so for a kid to do it is is even more of a monumental task and joe finds that out very quickly and to the extent where he watches as the family basically unravels around him no matter what he does and it's it's a really interesting portrayal of that sort of you know a, it's like the opposite of the parent trap where the parent trap fun happy go lucky movie about two girls who have to bring their parents together 
and through mishaps and adventures and fun and silliness and pranks, it all comes together and it works. This is almost the exact opposite of that where a kid wants to bring his parents together and it feels like at every turn he's driving them further apart. Whether it's through a fault through a fault of his or or just happens to happen, you know, around him. Um, it's a shame. It's not a happy movie. This is a pretty sad movie, pretty dramatic, traumatic film. And I think it's really good, though. I, I think Dano's, uh, you know, first outing as a director is strong. It's solid. You know, he gets a very interesting and, and charismatic performance from Carey Mulligan, who carries the movie in a lot of parts. Uh, Ed Oxenbold does a good job, though I think he left me wanting a couple of times. Jake Gyllenhaal, very reserved in his limited role, which was straight, which was surprising. I didn't realize he was going to be so uh, cut out of the film, but as it turned out, he was. I don't know. That's that's where things stand for me with wildlife. I liked it. Uh, thumbs up. But be careful because it is kind of a tough watch at times. Definitely at times. So that's Wildlife, Paul Dano, directorial debut written by Paul Dano and Zoe Kazan, who is another famous actor for The Big Sick. Uh, she was recently in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs on Netflix. She was also in Ruby Sparks and worked as a writer on Ruby Sparks. Um, and many other things. She's been in some movies. But moving on to our second film. Uh, our second film is Vox Lux. Vox Lux, directed by Brady Corbett, who is an actor, uh, taking his foray into directing, which this is not the first film he has directed, but looking at his filmography is his second feature film. Uh, his first feature film was The Childhood of a Leader from 2015 that I haven't seen, but have on my Letterboxd watch list. As an actor, Brady Corbett has been in Melan Melancholia, Force Majeure, While We're Young, Clouds of Sils Maria, Funny Games, Mysterious Skin, Martha Marcy May Marlene, 13, some, some big movies. Vox Lux stars Natalie Portman, Rafi Cassidy, Jude Law, Stacey Martin, Jennifer L., Willem Dafoe, Christopher Abbott, and Maria Ditzia in various capacities. So Vox Lux is... Another in a series of films that have recently been, and, and I don't know if this trend started with La La Land or how, if it was in all influence, influenced by La La Land or just coincidence that these films have been, were made in the same time span as each other. But between 
it feels like we've had a lot of movies with between A Star Is Born and La La Land and Vox Lux, I would even say Bohemian Rhapsody, where we're following real or you know fictional musicians, artists, who at one point during their film, during their story, uh, struggle with this sort of pop music disaster. Uh, so La La Land, famously, you know, the John Legend character invites Ryan Gosling into his band to perform, and they perform Start a Fire, which is supposed to be like Gosling selling out as a jazz musician. You know, whatever you think, you know, whether or not you like Start a Fire, I like it. I think it's a good song, but... Either way, it's supposed it's presented as him selling out. You look at A Star is Born from earlier this year, and you watch as Lady Gaga's character, you know, turns sort of morphs into this pop star who whose songs change their their content changes drastically uh, during her performance for SNL particularly is one where we even see uh, Bradley Cooper kind of just like repulsed by what he's seeing. You look at Bohemian Rhapsody and there's elements of that where they want to avoid falling into that trap. Vox Lux takes this from a completely different perspective though. Uh, So Natalie Portman and Rafi Cassidy both play Celeste. Rafi Cassidy, when around 2000, when her career was beginning, and Natalie Portman in 2017, when it is ending. Well, not ending, but uh, at least uh, culminating, maybe is the right word. And the film approaches music and performance and pop music from a very different perspective than the others I've recently just named. Because it kind of goes the opposite way. Because I think Celeste is much more concerned with being popular, with maintaining her image, with cultivating um, almost and even, you know, kind of said in the film, a religion around her. And in the beginning, in the first half of the movie, when Celeste is played by Rafi Cassidy, Rafi, Rafi, two Fs, Rafi, she is a religious girl. She is involved in a pretty traumatic event that takes place. Uh, She is injured quite severely. And at a funeral, wake, funeral, uh, she performs a song for the attendants because she can't she can't put how she feels into into a a speech, but she can convey how she feels through song. And Rafi Cassidy performs a brilliant rendition of of um, in front of everybody. It's it was really moving and. It was caught on camera, and suddenly 
she became a hit. That was all it took. She became famous almost overnight. She was on the news. Everybody saw it. Uh, suddenly, she was being offered, you know, an album deal and and you know, opening for other bands and and doing uh, department store performances and and mall performances and and shooting a music video. All these things. All, all of a sudden, everything falls into her lap, which is, I mean, it's great for her. But at the same time, we're seeing this new world around her trying to adjust to who she is. We see her even, you know, in the first half of the movie still, as Ra- uh, you know, played by Rafi Cassidy, Celeste is trying to find a place in the world that she fits, especially a, a place in the pop world, music world. And it becomes very clear that she doesn't really fit there. You know, um, mirroring such similar paths as, say, Katy Perry or Taylor Swift, who's, you look at them now and the music they're making and performing and, and their style, and it's it's a stark contrast to what they began as, as musicians. Not that I think that they couldn't have been successful as their previous iterations, not that I even think that their trajectories have been a bad one by any stretch, um, but it's it's apparent how much has changed for them. And I'm sure this is true of a lot of other artists as well. Those are the big two that come to mind. And for Celeste, she kind of goes through the same thing. The song she sings at the funeral is very heartfelt. It's very kind of like a ballad almost. It's It's very soulful. And then by the end of this first half section right before we transition to Natalie Portman, she's already singing pop songs. Everything has already become catchy and repetitive, and it, it really does feel as if she's sold out, in a sense. Which, if that's where the end of the movie was, is probably the takeaway. Oh, she couldn't hack it and as her original, uh, you know... Persona, so she had to change everything about herself, and suddenly she's able to make things work. However, we have the second half of the movie with Natalie Portman. Now, about 15 years later, uh, she has a daughter played by Rafi Cassidy, which is strange uh, because her sister Eleanor is played by Stacy Martin in the first and second half of the movie. The only character who has a different actor in the second half is Celeste. And the only new character in the second half is Celeste's daughter, Albertine, who is played by Rafi Cassidy, who was Celeste in the first half. It's it's a strange situation. Um, there, there's a very confusing sequence uh, early on in the second half that I found uh, puzzling as the, as I was trying to discern, okay, who is Ra- Rafi Cassidy the daughter of and who's talking about who when they're saying aunt and grandma and mom and daughter. It was very confusing. 
and then it, I figured it out. I got I got past it. <clears throat> and and now the story becomes less about Celeste's trying to struggle to find her place in the music industry and more about her sort of blossoming as this titan of said industry. She has almost entirely shunned the life she used to live, for better or worse. She has embraced everything around her, uh, the media, the her fans, uh, the the image, her persona. You know, she has kind of gone full Lady Gaga, the pop star in the second half of this movie and I I liked it I thought that was a you know I thought you know this is a movie that felt like it was going to become in its second half okay how do we get Celeste back to where she began how do we get her back to herself to her uh, original personality and that's not what the second half of the movie is about in fact Celeste you know openly derides who she used to be and it's no less clear than that than in the of, of that than in the way that she uh, interacts with her daughter played by the actor who played her in the first half which is Confusing, but also brilliant when I f- actually got a chance to step back and like really com- you know look at it because you have these moments and these shots where you see Rafi Cassidy next to Stacey Martin and they're the br- sisters. They played sisters in the first half and now they're an aunt and niece in, this, in the second half. But because we spent so much time with them as sisters, we're looking at them now and we're remembering how they used to be and seeing the differences and how everything grates against itself now. And I think there's a lot of commentary being said by the simple usage of Rafi Cassidy as her former character's daughter. <laughs> and I like that. I like the the way that the, the film and I like the way that Brady Corbett and the casting team decided to approach that issue. Because by the... As we progress through, Natalie Portman becomes more and more agitated. There's a moment in the first half of the movie where Celeste says to Jude Law's character, who plays uh, the their manager she tells him hey stop swearing you know my sister doesn't like it when you swear and by the second half of the movie you know she's throwing f-bombs and you know fuck this motherfucker that like she's just completely unhinged her her complete evolution to this point is is almost the opposite of what she started out as and you can feel in her dialogue how painful it has been to get to this point and how painful it remains to consistently be the person that she is. It's, tri- it's tiresome, it's trying, and it's pushing the people that she used to care about away from her. It's pushing the people she still cares about away from her. And 
at the same time, she can't stop it. She is this new version of Celeste. She is this superstar. And I think that the film ultimately results in this... I don't want to say indictment, but... uh, or, Or... but it kind of, I mean, it kind of is. It's kind of an indictment on the entire stardom. Um, what's what, what's the uh, what's the term I'm looking for here? On this idea of stardom and the way that these people, uh, pop stars, actors, you know, are are revered and held up on this pedestal. And I think Fox Lux does a really good job of breaking that down, showing you the different facets of someone's life and how they bring the this they 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 rise to this height and ultimately become something alien to themselves and even even the idea of it of of celeste you know turning into this alien is is very much explored in this film and i I love that i don't know i i I think the film has its problems uh for sure i think it it struggles with uh some of some of the writing i think struggles particularly in the second half uh brady corbett is the the credited writer on the film writing and directing. Uh, I think the direction he's trying to go is strong, but I think his writing is unrefined and it takes him uh, longer than is necessary to get to some of the points he's trying to make. I think the transition of Rafi Cassidy as Celeste to Rafi Cassidy as Albertine is a little jarring and clunky in execution. There's a scene with Christopher Abbott. He plays uh, an interviewer, reporter, that felt out of place. Not that I didn't want that the 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 result of that scene to happen, but I, I thought that just how it was just kind of like injected into the movie in an odd way. Uh, the look of the film is great. The costuming, the presentation, it, it felt real and visceral. I loved the camera work. I loved the cinematography. Uh, it's a good film. It's a very strong movie. And it's a shame that, you know, it, it kind of feels like it's kind of falling apart at the box office, but it's still out there in theaters if you have the opportunity to see it. It is not for the faint of heart. There are some pretty drastic moments that happen that I didn't mention. Uh, they happen at the beginning of both halves of the film. And uh, yeah, they are they are tough to watch. So I will caution about that that those those moments are definitely pertinent to the movie uh, and and stick with it throughout the entirety of the film, but they are treated in a way that, despite the idea of, Celeste, you know, kind of rising from the ashes to be this superstar. Uh, these mo- these pretty these traumatic moments are not treated lightly and are given the weight that they uh, deserve, I believe.
So uh, that's um, that's Fox Lux. Again, I recommend it, but it does have some some things that you should be aware of before you go into it. It is a little tough to watch, but I, I thought it was quite quite good, and I thought it has some very interesting things to say about the uh, like the TMZ aspect of the world. So, Fox Lux, Fox Lux. This brings us to our final film of today's episode, The Favorite, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, who is the acclaimed director of Dogtooth, The Lobster, and more most recently from last year, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh, those are the films I've seen of his prior to The Favorite. Uh, he does have a handful of other movies uh, on Letterboxd, but that's about it. He is a Greek filmmaker, born in Athens. And I would say generally a pretty weird filmmaker, all things considered. His films are tough to connect with. They do not generally resonate with audiences and don't often make a lot of money because of those things. However... Earlier, early reactions to the favorite called it the most uh, friendly, audience-friendly film that Lanthimos has ever made. And so it is, uh, I believe, holds the record right now for per theater average on its opening weekend, which was like 100K. Uh, the favorite stars Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz, Nicholas Holt, Joe Alwyn, Mark Gattis, and others. And uh, succinctly, the film follows Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz as they tr- uh, as cousins who are trying to win the favor of Queen Olivia Coleman. Uh, Queen Anne, Emma Stone as Abigail Hill, Rachel Weisz as Sarah Churchill. So one of the one of the big questions surrounding this movie especially in relation to its awards uh, prospects is who's lead who's supporting and i think the easiest distinction to make is that Rachel Weiss is supporting in this movie however outside of that i th- you know right now Olivia Coleman seems to be the one playing lead in uh, most film or, or most ceremonies and most categories, whereas Emma Stone is often basically just being considered supporting. And I don't know that I agree with that. I would say, if anything, they're both leads. But at that, uh, even that doesn't like you can make the argument that Olivia Coleman is supporting, you can make the argument that Emma Stone is supporting. It is tricky because all three women are given scenes specifically from their points of view. Uh, All three women are cut out of scenes that are given to just the other two women. But I do think that Rachel Weisz as supporting is is exactly where she should be. be. Emma Stone and Olivia Coleman are a little more questionable. And I haven't yet put the favorite into my spreadsheet, so I don't... And I do imagine putting probably at least two of the three lead women, or of the three main women uh, from the film, into my current list of awards, but I will have to reevaluate their positions when I get there. Uh, 
So, uh, the film follows, in my opinion, the film follows Emma Stone rising from uh, the puddle of mud that she has kicked in, she has pushed into early in the film, to a sim, uh, into a position where she actually has the opportunity to win Queen Anne's favor. And along the way, she has to engage with Joe Alwyn, who is um, who plays Sam, Samuel Masham, uh, as a potential lover, potential you know roadblock. She has to contend with Nicholas Holt, who is who plays Robert Harley and is one of the two um, political party leaders uh, that advises the Queen. And then she has, obviously, Rachel Weisz, who is similarly contending with Emma Stone as uh, to be the favorite, as it were. And at the top of the rung, at the top of the ladder, you have Queen Anne, who is aging. She has gout. She has a lot of problems. She is very ill. She's very sick. Uh, she has, uh, you know, thir- uh, 14 rabbits in her room that live with her she can't see very well she is very susceptible to influence from everyone and it's it's a tricky tricky prospect uh being close to her i'll say you know she is prone to fits of anger uh, mood swings she struggles um, to, to, to maintain her composure in a lot of ways. And Rachel Weisz, from the onset of the film, is the second, is her closest confidant, the person who was next to her the whole time, insisting on this thing or that thing, doing what she can to improve Queen Anne's life, to, to make her more comfortable, to be with her, to... to uh, unburden her shoulders and seems like a good gig right you know you're the favorite of the queen of england and that uh, is fairly seems like a good place to be you know you you look at the servants quarters that emma stone occupies early on in the film they seem pretty awful they are uh living in squalor even within you know the queen's castle so as the film progresses it's it's split up into parts uh, each part named after a line said by one of the characters and each part is kind of and and this is why i really do think emma stone is should be considered a lead in this film is that in my opinion each part starts with emma stone in one station in life and ends with her having either changed her station or um Be, be, she's be, she's been put into a different situation at the end of each part. Um, 
whether it's plot positive or negative, she has adjusted. Uh, so, for example, in the first part, she starts as a foreign cousin to Rachel Weiss and ultimately ends up uh, as a servant girl in the castle. And in the second part, she starts as said servant girl and ends up, I, I believe she is uh, basically personal assistant to Rachel Weiss's character by the end of the second segment. So each segment, we get to see Emma Stone change uh, her status. Um, and we get to watch her defy orders and win over the queen, but then also, you know, now she's got Rachel Weiss working against her, Nicholas Holt working against her, Joe Alwyn pursuing her romantically, and all these kind of characters happening around Emma Stone and Olivia Coleman trying to curry favor. Because at the end of the day, that is this movie, currying favor. I need to be on this person's good side. I need to be on that person's good side. I need you to do what the right thing for me. I need you to do the wrong thing for them. And so on and so on and so on and so on. I've wanted... I'm a big fan of Lanthimos. I really... I've enjoyed all the movies of his I've seen. Uh, I think, for me, Dogtooth was my favorite prior to seeing the favorite. And it is still my favorite. Uh, I think by Lanthimos making a movie that is more receptive by the general audience, it does lose a bit of his own touch. Not that this isn't clearly a film made by Yorgos Lanthimos. I, you know, he's the kind of auteur director that I'm, I feel very confident in my ability to no, it was him. If I didn't realize he was the one who directed it after have, after I, after I saw the movie, he just his approach is is very Kubrickian, and I, I don't mean to suggest that they made the same type of movies, but you know the favorite is Lanthimos's version of uh, not what is it? Um, all I can think of is Billy Lynn. It's not Billy Lynn. Oh, uh, the one with Ryan O'Neill. I'm going to figure it out. Uh, da, 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 da. Barry Lyndon. Billy Lynn. Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon is the period piece film that Kubrick made. The favorite is the period piece film that Lanthimos made. And it feels that way. You know? It feels like he has brought his sensibilities to this setting. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it's a boon. It's it's helpful. He, you know, he makes the most use out of this setting uh, that he can for his tendencies. He creates these three incredibly complex, very strong, very fascinating characters. But it ultimately does feel like he is playing a little bit to the general audiences in the way that it's. Presented, I, I think one time, a couple of times too many, he gives a sort of wink to the audience to kind of bring you further into the film with him. And while that is generally a good thing, 
what I like about Lanthimos's other films, Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Lobster and Dogtooth, is that I never felt like they did that. And I don't feel like they needed to do that. And I think he his previous films let you, if you weren't in for them, then he just said, all right, fuck it. You don't, if you're not invested in my movie, I'm not going to, you know, spoon feed it to you. And I think there are moments in the favorite where that happens. And that isn't an, isn't an objectively bad element in the film, but is kind of a step back. It's a hesitance. And it felt like if, you know, rather than this being the first movie that, you know, audiences could connect with on a massive scale, it felt like Lanthimos was saying, I want audiences to connect with this film more than I have my previous works. And that frustrates me. However, all that said, I, I really enjoyed The Favorite. The performances are fin- fantastic. Uh, Nicholas Holt is criminally under underrated. Uh, you know, I Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz completely deserve all the credit they've been getting, but Nicholas Holt deserves to be in that conversation. The rivalry between Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz is great. Their chemistry is incredible. Olivia Coleman is magnificent, uh, you know, at times playing the bewildered, wide-eyed, almost childlike character in the movie, and at other times you, you can feel and see the ruthlessness peek through her facade. The costuming, the production design, the the makeup, all of that, all of the physical, technical aspects, I loved. Your, uh, Lanthimos's camera work and the cinematography in Favorite is impeccable. Uh, you know, it's 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 a very very accomplished film, and I think it's I think it's great, but I think it does fall a, a notch short of completely captivating me the way that uh, especially Dogtooth did and i my 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 most sincere hope is that by having more people go to see the favorite it will lead to uh, more people discovering the rest of lanthimos's filmography the favorite is great but so are the other movies he's made and they should all be seen and considered that way i really enjoyed the favorite my favorite it is the going to be the again none of these movies have their scores and stats put into my spreadsheet yet but all of them are over a 70 for me with the favorite being the highest rated of the three of them so a very strong crop of reviews a very strong crop of films uh being reviewed and the favorite is at the top of that chart so um that's that's my review of The Favorite. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Uh, I really do appreciate it. It means a lot to me. And before I cut over to the outro, uh, I'm releasing this episode Monday, December 17th. The uh, I'm going on vacation on Saturday, uh, the 22nd. I will be 
away from my home until the 2nd of January, uh, during which time I will be doing a lot of work on my writing, my book, uh, because it's due. However, uh, I have plans to... I have episodes planned out through the end of next week, so all the way through the end of... I guess not, technically. Uh, So if this is episode one, I have six episodes planned out currently. Uh, I'm looking to figure out uh, a seventh because I will need that. Uh, Actually, I need a seventh and an eighth. I don't know if I'll be able to get to those, but I will keep you posted on Twitter if you want to be aware ahead of time whether or not those episodes will happen. Thank you for listening one more time. And now the outro, courtesy of Meg Berquist. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like to listen to more episodes, you can find this podcast at circleoffilm.com or on iTunes. Don't forget to rate and review. If you'd like to follow Ryan on Twitter, you can find him at circleoffilm or contact him through email at circleoffilm at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash circle film for as little as eight cents an episode. Thank you again for listening and have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same night. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fades from view. So long, farewell, I'll be the same Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute.